This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review. It is Wednesday. We are talking gastroschisis, emphalocele, abdominal wall defects. Daphne, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, I'm Today, I was going to really talk about kind of delivery and the immediate postnatal force. So I hope people will find it useful. Okay. So um, for really both of the uh, abdominal wall defects, gastroschisis and emphalocele, uh, infants may benefit from delivering in institutions, obviously with a strong multidisciplinary team where they have ready access to neonatology and a pediatric surgeon. Um, you know, I think this really speaks to regionalization of care uh, for certain um, diagnoses. So definitely something to consider. Um, in general, and I'll start with uh, gastroschisis. In general, barring any other complications uh, regarding delivery, a trial of vaginal delivery is still recommended rather um, than a scheduled cesarean birth for most patients. Um, and spontaneous delivery usually occurs somewhere between 36 to 38 weeks. That's um, for both emphalocele and gastroschisis? No. Right now, I'm just talking about gastroschisis. Okay. Um, delivery must be balanced, obviously, between neonatal complications of prematurity and a prolonged exposure of the bowel to amniotic fluid. Um, so this this may not be a mom we let go to 41 weeks, um, right? Because it's ongoing um, exposure of the bowel to amniotic uh, fluid. Um, it, it should be noted, like we talked about on Monday, that premature birth is actually, um, not uncommon in gastroschisis. So, um, they have higher rates of prematurity, um, felt to be caused by this inflammation that's going on in utero because of the irritation, um, to the intestinal loops. Um, but if you get the choice, it's nice to get babies as close to term as possible. Um, immediate management, obviously, people forget about this, first requires routine airway management. So that's one thing I really wanted to highlight. I think sometimes people get so caught up with um, the abdominal wall defect that they forget some of those initial steps, um, if, especially if it's your first time managing these babies. And some of them still do need um, airway support, um, yeah. especially a lot of secretions, clearing the secretions. Um, so that needs to be done as step one to keep you out of trouble later. Um, it's nice to have a larger team than usual. So one person can uh, maintain control of the airway um, while other people are maintaining control of the exposed bowel. Um, so next is really protection of the exposed bowel in general. At most institutions, the exposed infant uh, bowel is protected following birth by placing the entire baby in the lower half of the body, um, including the defect into a bowel bag. That's why they're called bowel bags. Um, and care must be taken to keep from compressing the mesenteric stalk or um, kind of the insertion of uh, the intestines um, at its base, um, because this is where all the vessels that um, 
supply the intestines are coming through. So it's found at the base of the defect. Um, and after initial stabilization, so after you've managed the airway, infants should be placed in a lateral recumbent position to avoid pressure or twisting at the stalk. And for the more experienced provider, uh, you know, resuscitation can often happen uh, in a recumbent or side-lying position, um, you know, especially since most of these babies don't need to be intubated, though some of them do. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing to remember, um, like your congenital diaphragmatic hernias, an orogastric tube should be placed as soon as possible, um, hopefully bringing one into the delivery room during resuscitation to decompress the bowel. Then once you move back to the unit and um, you uh, uh, are, are uh, safe, safely back after initial resuscitation, um, fluid resuscitation is really the next major step. It's especially important for these infants because the evaporative losses from the exposed bowel um, can be really dramatic. Um, they can have uh, losses at more than two and a half times that of a neonate without gastroschisis. So um, very quickly um, placing uh, an IV or two to make sure you have secure access um, and then providing fluids at a rate of at least two times maintenance is crucial and some babies need even more than that. Um, however, there's a balance, right? So that's why we don't start them at four times maintenance, um, because overhydration, it may be, um, our, our surgery colleague, uh, this week can speak to that, but overhydration can lead actually to increased bowel wall edema, which makes the reduction or surgical procedure more complicated. Antibiotics are routinely administered in abdominal wall defects, um, though that's, also under study as uh, we're doing uh, more antibiotic stewardship. And then I think this is something that is frequently overlooked, but temperature management is especially important in these babies like you would with an extremely preterm infant. Um, so not not only are they having evaporative water losses, but they're having a lot of temperature loss uh, because of the lack of the overlying skin. So care is uh, necessary to prevent hypothermia in these infants. Finally, um, early evaluation by the surgical team is also important to examine the defect size. So um, what is the defect in the skin? Um, Like I said sometime this week, uh, a small defect has a higher risk of having some sort of vascular injury um, because those vessels can become impinged. Um, but they uh, would look closely at the bowel early on to look for obvious atresias, uh, volvulus, or ischemia. And then close monitoring for evidence of ischemia, especially in those infants with a small defect, is imperative. So with every touch time, people should be looking at the, the bowel to make sure that there's no new obvious ischemia. Further management depends on the size of the defect. So there are lots of different closure options. Closure can be performed operatively. So this is called primary closure. Um, So they decide we'll just uh, put it all back in at one time. And this is um, uh, usually the uh, closure of choice for a very small defect. Or it can be done via delayed primary closure after a period of slow bowel reductions using a spring-loaded silo to contain the bowel. And we'll have some pictures of that also if you haven't experienced that. So there's been a lot of debate about which of these um, 
options is the quote unquote right one. So there's a lot of retrospective studies um, and the the data showed conflicting results regarding closure outcomes. Um, and it, some of it related to which institutions were they forced to change? Uh, or did they change just because the silo was invent, uh, you know, became available for these babies? Um, but there was a meta-analysis in 2014 showing that primary closure was associated with improved outcomes, but there was still some concern about selection bias in that study. There was a very small randomized control trial in 2019 of 38 patients comparing the two management options, which didn't find any difference in complications, length of stay, or time to full feeds. Mm -hmm. Um, also in 2004, um, really this became a new thing, the suture, the quote unquote sutureless closure. Um, and in this technique, the umbilical cord, because it's totally intact, um, you know, adjacent to the defect is used to seal the defect and then covered by an occlusive dressing. And this mm. is becoming popular because it can be done at the bedside with reduced need for anesthesia. Although some studies show increased time to feeds and discharge. Charge. Um, I think uh, people also feel like the cosmetic um, appearance uh, is improved after the sutureless uh, closure using um, the umbilical cord. But regardless of treatment modality, monitoring for abdominal compartment syndrome after closure is really important. So you should have close observation of the abdominal exam, the urine output, peripheral perfusion, impulses, hypotension, acidosis, um, all important markers of abdominal compartment syndrome, which it, uh, would be an, uh, an abdominal, a surgical emergency. Oh, abdominal compartment. Oof. It's awful. Um, of note, gastroschisis is one of the congenital anomalies associated with the longest length of stay in the neonatal ICU. And this is potentiated by the dysmotility seen in gastroschisis, which again leads to really prolonged feeding um, intolerance, um, poor growth, and then TPN-associated dysfunction. There's something else I wanted to mention, um, which is not very common, but um, certainly increases the morbidity and mortality associated with gastroschisis, and that is something called a, a vanishing gastroschisis. I was wondering if you were going to mention that. I am. I am. So this is uncommon, but again, high mortality and morbidity. This happens when the abdominal defect, so um, the, the abdominal wall was delayed um, was open, was open. So you had the gastroschisis, but that the abdominal defect actually closes on itself in utero, um, basically impinging on the the bowel. So some of it, most of the bowel gets back in, but some of the bowel stays out. And this is associated with an extensive atresia of the intestine and um, resulting in short uh, short gut or short bowel syndrome. Um, this can be prenatally diagnosed um, by a gastroschisis that appears to resolve, quote unquote, on its own, um, because sometimes um, very little of the bowel is left. Sometimes no bowel is left. That's the um, scariest one. That's the scariest one. Because So the, the abdominal exam may be um, completely normal, uh, but babies present with feeding intolerance. Yeah, because basically, it, it, like you said, it incarcerated the, the bowel. That's right. And the bowel necrosed. Just and, died and off. Dissolved, and yeah. that's it. Oh. Yeah. 
And so you may still have a normal appearing abdominal exam, but have a severe uh, atresia and a very, very uh, significantly shortened bowel left um, in the abdominal cavity. Okay. Terrifying. Terrifying. So let's talk a little bit about the emphalocele. Um, so like I said before, prematurity is much less common in emphalocele than in gastrospecies. Um, delivery at term is anticipated and maybe via vaginal or C-section delivery with a recommendation for moving the C-section reserved for giant emphalocele, so really big defects, um, and some emphalocele's containing the liver or if the emphalocele much larger, much likely to be a larger defect containing multiple organs. The initial steps in management from valsial and gastroschisis are similar in many ways. First, airway management, uh, followed by careful man- manipulation of the defect. And in emphalocele, you really want to make sure that you're making every effort not to rupture the peritoneal sac because that's still very protective for the emphalocele. Mm-hmm. The emphalocele should be loosely covered with moist dressings. Um, maintenance IV fluids and antibiotics are administered, um, so they can still have some heat and uh, water losses, but not nearly um, that of the baby with gastroschisis. Postnatal evaluation for associated anomalies is really the next step. It's critical in these patients um, to see, is there anything else going on since there's such a high association with other anomalies? It usually includes echo, abdominal ultrasound, close monitoring of glucose levels, given the significant association with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. There it is again. There it is again. Um, And then surgical management is also different. It depends on the size of the defect and if other organs are involved. With a small protrusion of contents, the primary closure um, is typically achieved within the first 72 hours. So the surgeons are able to go, put everything back, um, and um, close the skin. Or they may leave the skin open part of the way and close that later. If the defect is large, then the contents may still be placed in a silo like they are with gastroschisis for stage reduction. And if the defect is very large, like a giant emphalocele, more time may be needed to stretch the abdominal wall. And this may require um, using tissue expanders and a patch or skin graft may be required for final closure. And then the other technique, which I've seen a few times, and it's really, I mean, impressive and dramatic, is the use of the quote unquote paint and weight technique. Um, So this is done for very large defects where they're afraid um, that they won't be able to stretch the skin in any, you know, foreseeable future, um, where even stage closure may not be possible. So they use a topical um, escharatic agent, something that creates an eschar, um, which then becomes epithelia, epithelialized over the course of many weeks. So first you paint it on, it makes this like paper mache uh, balloon. You never did a paper mache balloon? No, no, no. Are you looking at me like that? Because paper mache on the table in school is fine. Paper mache at the bedside to close an abdominal yeah. wall defect is terrifying. But that's really what it looks like. And then eventually the skin grows over it. I mean, it's remarkable, this honestly. Is nuts. It's nuts. Um, this is and like it, sci-fi, you know, like when they yeah. put like the the bottom, like it creates new layers of skin. This is nuts. Yeah, it's it's really pretty. What cool. is that technique called again? You mentioned it. Paint, paint, and weight. Love it. So you paint on this topical agent, it creates an, an eschar, a little kind of scar formation, and then the skin grows over it. 
Um, infants with emphalocele, even more than babies with gastroschisis, particularly those with large defects, are at risk for development of the compartment syndrome. And we talked about how to monitor that um, earlier uh, today. And as previously mentioned, length of stay depends on feeding tolerance, which tends to be better than those babies with gastroschisis because, again, the intestines were relatively protected, so they don't have as much inflammation or dilation or matting as the babies with gastroschisis. Um, but they still take time to work up on feeds. They can have TPN-associated comorbidities. Um, they have much more frequent pulmonary comorbidities, um, especially the bigger the defect, the more likely there is to be pulmonary hypoplasia. Um, and so they're more likely to need um, respiratory support and a ventilator. And then depending on what additional congenital anomalies or malformations or genetic syndromes, um, that would increase uh, the morbidity, the mortality, and length of stay. So that's all I had for you today. That's, that was intense. <laughs> but the vanishing gastroschisis is still the, the most terrifying thing. Yeah, that could be any baby, right? It could be any baby. But it's... I ha you have to assume, I mean, if you go, I mean, if it's not like, if you're listening outside of lunch hours, which is not what we're, we're recording during lunch hour, <laughs> and I was hungry, and then I looked at vanishing gastroschisis, and it's it's not fun, but not fun. most of the time, you, you should have a little remnant, hopefully. Yeah, so that was, in, that. those pictures are interesting also, right? It, there's, a rem, there's a remnant of a structure that, that looks like intestine, but it's all like shriveled up and... Yeah. and <laughs> And matted. Um, so it's But hopefully it's that's your clue. Yeah, that would yeah. be a major clue. Yeah. Not something you want to miss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All, All right. right. Thank you. See you tomorrow. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.